Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, uh, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The word of the Lord. Looking at the big picture of salvation history, you might say, Deborah, oh, you're beginning there. I'm beginning there. Let's go big. We'll go big and we'll go theological uh, before we get small and personal. But looking at the big picture of salvation history, we see so much change and so much loss. So many ends and so many beginnings. And sometimes it's hard to make sense of all of them. We hear one thing say, this is the end, or no, now this is the end, or this is the beginning, no, this is the beginning. Which one is it? Where is the end and where is the beginning? And in Revelation, we truly do see the end of all ends. Here depicted a vision that was given to St. John while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. And we must reconcile these words that we hear Jesus saying to St. John, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We must reconcile this end at the end of all things with the end that we hear from the cross, with Jesus' words there, his last words, some of his last words saying, It is finished. We also must reconcile the beginning, the beginning that we see here, because this is the end. It's the end of Scripture, right? The last, one of the last chapters of the Bible. It's the end of the human story, and yet it's the beginning of eternity. The beginning of a life lived in perfect communion with God eternally. It's the beginning. We see the beginning in the beginning of the beginning, in the beginning of creation. And we see at Christmas a beginning, the beginning of the end. So I'll look at all of those things, if you can believe it, in the next ten minutes or so. Huh. I've set myself a big task. Um, but how, and we'll look at how all of this fits together. But I can't help um, but look at my life and understand my life personally in light of the story of salvation history. And I hope you do this as well. I hope you look at your life and then you look at scripture and you say, Lord, where do I fit in? Lord, where are you breaking into my story with good news? And for me, as um, Rich mentioned, I do have big news. I am in the middle. Uh, I'm in the middle of an end, and I'm in the middle of a beginning. I am um, about to have a major life change. In less than a month, I will get married. (laughs) Yeah, I feel feel the same way, too, actually. People keep saying, I'm so happy for you, and I'm like, I know, (laughs) I'm so 
so happy for me too. Uh, it's the end of a time, the end of an era, the end of a long adulthood being single. I'm, I've been, I'm 36, if you can believe it, and I've been single for a long time. Those earliest years of my 20s were the hardest. And I came to love a certain movie that I first saw in college called Bridget Jones' Diary. And I had this wonderful stint in between seminary and my first call in ordained ministry. I had about a year. And it was because I dragged my feet. I dragged my feet in the ordination process because I wasn't sure. I said, Lord, I'd really rather get married than get ordained. And he said, yeah, I'd rather you get ordained than get married. And he kept drawing it off. I see now why he was doing that. But during that time, I went to, um, I fulfilled a dream of mine. He the Lord made it possible for me to go to film school, learn about filmmaking, even though I only learned a little bit about it, and then to make a couple of short films. And during that time, there we are in film class, and we um, get to know each other with an icebreaker. And the icebreaker is, tell us your um, favorite, for top three favorite movies. And off the top of my head, I'd had practice at this for many years because my best friend and I in college would say, okay, your top three favorite albums of all time, go! And there's so much pressure in that, isn't there? I get overwhelmed by the pressure of naming my top three anything, favorite anything. And we would always say, well, it could be top three right now in this moment. In an hour, you can have three different favorites. Or tomorrow, you can have three different favorites. But right now, what are your top three favorites? And there in film school, I, I had to say what my top three favorite films were, and I was embarrassed. I was quickly trying to think of much classier films, much more artsy films. Um, and so I thought of um, Moulin Rouge, which is still one of my favorites. I thought of Amelie, which is still one of my favorites. And they're so romantic. It's so embarrassing. Um, and then my most embarrassing film that came out of my lips that I just said, and then I thought, I'd like to take that back, um, but I didn't take it back. That last one is the Bridget Jones' Diary, <laughs> if you've ever seen it. And uh, over the 15 years of being a single adult, I related more and more and more to those, uh, that film. I love just this fear of hers that she's going to die alone in her apartment and no one will discover her until she's eaten by wild dogs. And then one of her bones makes it into another setting and they realize she's been done away with. I think of that as very macabre, but that's the kind of fear that would play through your mind as a single person, and the longer I've been single, the more I think about that. Um, but no, really, there is um, the end of this time of solitude, which has not just been funny and there are lonely moments, but it's also been a sweet time, a time in the wilderness where the Lord himself has been so close to me and so near to me because I didn't have anyone else to rely on. He was so faithful in, um, in not just providing for me, but in communing with me and speaking to me, and loving on me, and showing me himself through the word. And yet now, so I'm at the end of that sweet wilderness, I'm poised into, um, poised on the verge of entry into a new era. I'm looking down at the beginning of a life spent together with my best friend, and it looks really good looks really good from here. I know I'm going to miss being alone. I know I'm going to miss that solitude and that time with the Lord. I know I'm going to miss um, having a clean house and not having to pick up after someone else. I'm going to miss all those things, but I'm also rejoicing. And so this big change, the big picture of beginnings and endings in our salvation history, and personally the big picture of these beginnings and endings that I'm looking at in my own life, caused me to ask you, and I'd love for you to think about it right now, where are you? What kind of change are you currently experiencing in your life? 
I think that every one of us, um, if we stop to think about it, we'll find ourselves at the end of a certain era and at the beginning of another era. Almost always. It might be that um, we're celebrating the birth of a new child, or it might be that suddenly we're at the age where all of our children are now in elementary school and we're home alone for the first time during the day. Or it might be that we're starting to say goodbye to all those baby clothes. The last baby has been born, and we're putting them in um, the goodwill, and we're saying goodbye to some of those beautiful little baby clothes. It might be that you've moved from one house to another, and you've had to say goodbye to that place where all those memories were made and start to look at the new, hopefully clean place. And you think, it's a, it's a blank slate. It's a, good, it's a clean palette. I can do a lot with this. It might be that you are now, for the first time, an empty nester, and that you have um, suddenly said goodbye to your adult children. They're off to college for the first time, and you're starting to learn again how to live with your husband, who's there all the time. Or maybe he's just retired, and then he's really there all the time, and you can't get rid of him. Uh, maybe, um, maybe, 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 maybe you're grieving. Maybe it's the grief, the loss of a parent, or the loss of a marriage, or the loss of a spouse. All of these changes calls us to long, to long for what is good, to long that the bad things that we've experienced, the sorrows, the sighings, the sufferings, that those things will be healed and even removed. We long, and we long that, for this hope. We long to hope that the future will be better than the past. But one of the dangers in this longing is that we place our hope in the new circumstances. We say, and I might say this now, Everything is going to be better on the other side of this moment in January when I will say I will. Everything will be better. Everything will be better if I just fill in the blank. Everything will be better when I just fill in the blank. And that is a kind of misguided hope. As Christians, our hope is so much more certain. Because as many of you know, when you get to the other side of whatever it is that you've been hoping for, you find that it's not all of what you expected it to be, is it? not everything you imagined or dreamed that it would be. My marriage, of course, will be everything I imagined and dreamed that it will be. But it might be that whatever it is that you're hoping for, you get there and you say, I haven't made it yet. This is not what I was looking forward to. Are you longing for a happy ending? I am. And that happy ending won't happen when I say I will. That's the beginning. Are you longing for a happy ending? There's a wonderful, um, uh, this wonderful idea, this word. I'm going to give you this word, and it's a strange word. It's a made-up word by a really good writer. It's called a catastrophe. J.R.R. Tolkien, who's one of my favorite authors. Yes, I'm one of those people who loves fantasy and fairy tales. and uh, I love the stories that spark my imagination. If you couldn't tell that from Moulin Rouge and Amelie, then um, I love um, allowing my imagination to be exercised. And J.R.R. Tolkien, in reflecting on his own works and reflecting on myth-making and storytelling and fairy tales in particular, he calls um, a catastrophe something that brings a catch of breath, a beat, and a lifting up of the heart. He, he says it's the kind of joy that's accompanied by tears. And he says that in all of the best stories, there is a catastrophe. Remember, a catastrophe. he describes it later, it's the opposite of a catastrophe. Right? So catastrophe is a disaster that happens, and it's of cataclysmic proportions. 
you catastrophes. Such a good thing. It's a good thing that breaks in unexpectedly from outside the story. And he says that in such stories that contain you catastrophes, when the sudden turn comes, we get a piercing glimpse of joy and heart's desire that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of the story, and lets a gleam of eternity come through. He goes on. I'm going to keep reading at you just because it's so glorious. He says, The consolation of fairy, t- fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, is the you catastrophe. It's the good catastrophe, the joyous turn. Um, and it's not essentially escapist or fugitive. He defends himself. He says, because in this fairy tale story, the other world setting, this um, you catastrophe operates as a sudden and miraculous grace. How wonderfully Christian. Um, And this grace does not deny the existence of sorrow or failure. These are, um, instead, they only push us on towards the joy of deliverance. If there's nothing to be delivered from, then our joy is so much less when we finally are delivered from it. Um, And it it shows that there is not, the end of the story will not be one, I'm paraphrasing now, can you tell? The end of the story will not be one of universal, final defeat, but rather one of joy, joy that is glimpsed beyond the walls of the world, joy that's as poignant as grief. He talks about all this, the happy endings in fairy tale stories, and then Tolkien goes on to say, the Gospels, contain a fairy story, a story of a larger kind which embraces the essence of all of the other fairy stories. They contain marvels, but the one thing about the story of the gospel is that this story has entered human history. The birth of Christ is the you-catastrophe of humankind's history. The resurrection is the you-catastrophe of the story of the incarnation. The story begins And the story ends in joy. There is no tale ever told that we would rather find was true, and none which so many skeptical people have accepted as true on its own merits. The fairy tale story of the gospel of Jesus Christ come down in the flesh, born as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem, dying for us, on the cross, and before that, let me just say, showing that there's something else that God indeed will break through miraculously into our natural world, and then at the cross showing that in fact God has broken through in Jesus Christ, that by his death we are forgiven, and by his resurrection we have hope of eternity, and hope for healing and some measure of restoration on this side of heaven. All of that is true. There is, there really is, a happy ending. One night in 1931, J.R.R. Tolkien was walking with his friend, younger friend and protege, C.S. Lewis, on the grounds of Magdalen College at Oxford University. In the middle of the night, they were with another friend, but that other friend never gets mentioned. And Tolkien was telling him about this, because Lewis had been so um, enamored of fairy tale stories. He had wanted to believe it, but he was so skeptical about Christianity. He just said, no, it's too good to be true. That can't be possible. And Tolkien challenged him and said, no, it really, what if it really was true? What if it really happened in history that God broke in to rescue all of mankind 
What if in Jesus Christ, God really did walk this earth, die, and rise again? And that was a huge catalyst for C.S. Lewis in becoming a Christian. Well, the content of this story, we know if we believe then that there's a happy ending, we can feel a lot more comfortable with this idea of being rescued. I don't like the idea of being rescued. I'd rather just do it myself. I'd rather that I'm the victory. I, I, I win the victory myself. I would like to be the heroine of my own story. Thank you very much, God. I'm all set. But when we see in Scripture, it is um, we're helpless. Without God, we're helpless without his intervention in our lives. We're helpless without his intervention in human history. And if you ever doubt that we need an intervention in human history, just read the news. All of the things going on right now in the world, the fear of terrorism coming closer and closer to home, um, it's very real. Our world, this creation, is aching and longing for God's intervention once and for all. Well, it's coming. It has come in Jesus Christ. Um, just to go on to the fairy tale aspect of it, as a, as a bride, I can't help but see all of the language of bride and bridegroom and wedding in Scripture. And you see that in the Gospels, Jesus Christ really is called the bridegroom. In John chapter 3, um, John the Baptist is trying to tell people, no, really, it's not me. I'm not the one. You've got to look to someone else. I'm really great, but Jesus Christ is the one that you need to look to. There in John chapter 3, John the Baptist says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man. He stands and hears him. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. He looks to Jesus and he says, He is the one that we've been waiting for. He is the one that our hearts have longed for. Jesus himself uses this word about um, to describe what's going on in his arrival on the stage of human history. The disciples of John come to him in Matthew chapter 9. And they're asking, they're wondering. You can tell they'd probably rather not be fasting. Because the disciples of John the Baptist would fast as a sign of mourning and longing and waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And they, did, they wondered, why did Jesus' disciples, why don't they fast? They should fast like us, right? We're more righteous than they. Why aren't they fasting? Um, and, and they probably would like an upgrade. They'd probably rather not fast. I, I don't know. I don't know about you. I'd rather not fast too. Jesus says to these disciples of John the Baptist, he says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Of course they can. Jesus, the Messiah, the true King, the coming one, he is the true bridegroom. He is the one to come and redeem all of humanity, to come and restore all of creation through the giving of his own self. To complement the bridegroom, the bride then, of course, is the church. The church seen not as a place, but as a people. As I just read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What a wonderful vision, a vision of loveliness. Who do you think that vision of loveliness is? But it's us. It's we, the redeemed, standing there at the end of a long, long aisle, looking, looking for the one to redeem us, looking for the one who has redeemed us. Um, what an image of wonderful clothes. Um, my, my, my own wedding gown, I, um, 
I managed, I was so bad. I went and I bought it before I was engaged. I knew, <laughs> I don't know if any of you ever did that. You can tell me afterwards. But I did what I wasn't supposed to do. I knew it was coming. And I thought, either this is really bold and really stupid, or it's an act of faith. And I thought, well, this has got to be an act of faith. So I had, um, of course, set my heart on a certain, um, certain bridal salon, and they only have uh, openings in New York and in Atlanta, and all of the New York appointments were taken all the way through January. And my beloved keeps saying, well, we'll get married in January. He's a philosopher, and so he lives in his mind. And I, I said to him, I love you, and I would love to get married in January, but we do have to you know, get engaged so that we could get married in January. But there I am behind the scenes, and I thought, well, we'll just meet up in Atlanta. My whole family flew in. My sisters and my parents, my brother couldn't come, but that's all right. He doesn't care about dresses as much anyway. There we were, and um, getting to try on all of these dresses, it, it was like a fairy tale come true. I felt like, as every woman says, I felt like a princess in wearing that dress. And my father's whole my father loves dresses, too. He's a great man. He loves, he loves watching his daughters, his wife, be beautiful. And he, he was watching me walk in one of the dresses, one of those mermaid-type dresses. Sorry, Rich, I'm going to get into the fashion side of it. One of those, you know, awful mermaid-type dresses that shows everything. It's not good. Um, I was walking in that dress back and forth, and my father said, well, you, you're not gliding in that one. Let's see if we can find one where you're gliding. <laughs> And sure enough, the one, the right one, came along, and it was more like tit um, Titania, the queen of the fairies, than like Galadriel, the queen of the elves. It was so soft and flowy and beautiful. <laughs> so I feel like a snow fairy in it, which is good for a winter wedding. And I just glide along. It's the most beautiful dress I've ever worn. It's so fantastic. I was thinking about these clothes, and I was thinking about the clothes that I get to wear as a bride, and the clothes that we get to wear as Christians. In, um, in Revelation, earlier on in chapter 7, uh, John sees the saints, and he asks, um, and one of the elders that's, you know, his tour guide, asks him, who are these that are clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And John answers him, Sir, you know, John is smart. He knows there's an answer coming. This is a rhetorical question. This is a learning opportunity. He doesn't know the answer. And the elder says to John, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is one of the first verses that I got to translate from Greek into English when I was in seminary. And I just remembered checking the words, because that's one of the beauties of having to go word by word, line by line, as you really slow down and you just take notice of things more. So you don't have to learn Greek. Just slow down and look and observe and see what you see. And I noticed this, especially as someone who does laundry, I noticed how are the robes getting white? No robes, no amount, no kind of clothing. What kind of clothing gets white in red blood? Nothing except um, the robes of our righteousness as um, sinners redeemed by Jesus Christ by virtue of his cross. Um, there are the robes of, of our clothing, all of those things that we would do to cover our shame, to cover who we are, to try to justify ourselves based on our own merit, based on our own activity, based on our own righteousness. Those are merely rags. They're stained rags. And yet we take them, we give them over to God, 
And in Jesus Christ, he washes them, purifies them, and brings to us brand new clothing. Clothing that is based on Jesus' own righteousness. Clothing that God wraps us in. One other article of clothing that I'll be wearing for my wedding is, um, you know, it's not just the wedding clothes. You have to think about the rehearsal dress and the, this dress and the, that dress. And, of course, I love dresses, so I'm glad to think about multiple dresses. But the, um, the other piece of clothing that I'm wearing is this, um, because it's winter, it's a fur. I have to whisper it because it's so beautiful. <laughs> and it's so not mine. It's not mine. It's my grandmother's. But it fit me, and it didn't fit my sisters. I wore it the other day, and I was walking around in this, and I said, wow, you really are putting on airs, aren't we? I was walking around, in it, and I thought, this is more money than I've ever worn on my back. And, I, and it's free. It was free to me. It was my inheritance. And it's heavy. It's this heavy, big coat um, that makes me stand up a little taller, that makes me feel comfortable and safe, that wraps around me such warmth, such security, and it's really soft, too. And I just, in wearing that, I couldn't help but continuing to think about the bride of Christ, about us, um, wrapped and clothed in Jesus' own righteousness, a righteousness that we haven't earned, a righteousness that we get to stand tall in and walk in. Um, And so in this last moment, in the end, the last day, when the new Jerusalem descends, We will be again like the bride waiting at the end of a long and beautiful aisle. And there we will meet God face to face. My photographer is talking about, oh, do you want to do the reveal? And I thought, no way. I don't want to have a reveal that's outside of the church. I want my new husband to see me dressed in those bridal clothes for the first time from the back of the church. I want him, I want to get to see his face. I want the whole congregation to see his face, that moment in time, even if the photographer can't capture it, that's far better. I want it to happen in real time. I want it to happen in the context of worship, where husband and wife, bride and groom, get to see each other for the first time on that day when they'll be joined forever. And I think about this for us. We have met God first in Jesus Christ. God is so gracious to us that we we don't see him face to face first in all of his holiness, in all of his great glory. No, we see him first face to face in his son, Jesus Christ, in Emmanuel, God with us, in the one who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, the one who made himself nothing, who took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ is the one who has humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then raised from the dead, raised to new life, he brings us up with him. He restores us, he forgives us, and he renews us. And on the last day, he raises us. And so when we receive Jesus again this Christmas, we receive him in his coming to us, in weakness, in lowliness, in humility. Nothing is more humble than a baby in a manger. Nothing is more humble than the most uh, unself-sufficient creature you've ever seen. Can't even hold up his neck. Little baby Jesus couldn't even go an hour without his mother's milk. Baby Jesus, um, there he is, vulnerable, made vulnerable for us, that we in our vulnerability and our shame might be covered and forgiven. When I think of that idea of God coming to us 
In humility, I think of one of my favorite Christmas carols. Once in royal David city stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother laid her baby in a manger for his bed. Mary was that mother mild, Jesus Christ, her little child. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all, and his shelter was a stable, and his cradle was a stall. With the poor, the mean, and lowly, lived on earth our Savior, holy. One more point, and then I'll finish. And that is that Jesus Christ, as the bridegroom, to be joined with the bride, as the one who has rescued, bought and redeemed for himself uh, this relationship, this beauty, a beauty um, that he, where he sees the beauty in us and calls it out of us. This bridegroom himself is longing for his happy ending in the same way that we are longing for our happy ending. Um, we see in John chapter 2, at the wedding at Cana, um, there's Jesus. I kind of picture him lurking in the corners. And I loved, Tim Keller has this image of him. He says that Jesus there, like all single people, is mooning about. This takes a little bit of artistic license. I was surprised that Tim Keller did this. But he said, but if he does it, I'll repeat it. Jesus is mooning about in the corners, waiting and longing for his own wedding. Imagining what his own wedding would look like. We see that in Revelation 21, what his wedding would look like. And there, as a sign of his wedding to come, Jesus transforms the water into wine as a sign that the best is yet to come. The end will come and it will be a glorious, happy ending. Uh, The end will come and it will be not the end, but the beginning, a beginning of eternity spent in the presence who who loves us beyond our deserving. And so with me, will you hear the words? These are words not from scripture, but from another favorite of mine. These are words from William Shakespeare uh, on a role that I never, I, some of you know I was an actor. I never got to play this role on stage, but I, and now I'm too old to play it, if you can imagine. Um, this is, these are words from Romeo and Juliet, Act 3, Scene 2. Oh, I have bought the mansion of a love but not possessed it. So tedious is this day as is the night before some festival to an impatient child that hath new robes and may not wear them. She's longing, waiting, expecting, looking with hope. We are longing, we are waiting, we are expecting and looking to hope, with hope, to the one in whom all of our hope is well-placed. We are looking with hope to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we look to you and we ask that in the midst of whatever it is that's going on in our life, as we enter into Christmas, we ask, Lord, that you would give us hope um, for the end that is the beginning, the hope that you will return, the hope that when you said it is finished, you really meant it, And even when we see um, all of the trouble and sorrow and heartache and the sin that persists in our own hearts, we can look to you with true and certain hope that one day you will return, that one day um, we will begin our life with you face to face um, without any impediment, that one day you will wipe away all the sorrow, every tear um, will be dried, and that we will live on eternally with you in great bliss. Amen. 
So now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound with hope.